For centuries, a tradition let observant Brits know that their monarch was in residence at Buckingham Palace. When her royal standard, the queen's own personal flag, flapped from the mast atop any of her palaces, it meant that the queen was in the house. When the flagpole was empty, it meant the queen was visiting elsewhere. To this day, the royal standard is never flown at half-mast. There is always a monarch on the throne, so the royal flag is never lowered as a sign of mourning or grief. The first time I studied Paul's letter to the Philippians, I read a commentary that used this as an illustration. It noted that the theme of Philippians is joy. Then it suggested that joy is the flag that flies from the mast of our lives when Jesus is residing in the palace of our hearts. Well, certainly that's true. But I never really liked the illustration for its summary of Philippians is woefully incomplete. Time and circumstances, though, have now rounded out the picture. It was in 1997 that Princess Diana, the most beloved of all the British royals, died while trying to escape the paparazzi. She was a victim in a terrible car crash. Diana's death was a crushing loss to her people. The entire United Kingdom was brokenhearted over what had happened to Princess Di. In fact, the public grew so angry when Buckingham Palace refused to fly a flag at half-mast, they protested. It just seemed wrong that there was no public sign of mourning. But the queen was in Balmoral, hundreds of miles away. And in keeping with the tradition, no flag was to be flown when the queen was not in residence. Well, in the end, the royal slight created such a controversy that Queen Elizabeth offered a compromise. The royal standard continues to flap from the flagpole only when the queen is present. But now, Great Britain's national flag, the Union Jack, flies at Buckingham Palace when the queen is not in residence. And if the queen decrees, the flag can be lowered to half-mast as a sign of grief or in honor of a deserving person. This is what happened during Princess Diana's funeral as well as on multiple occasions since. Thus, a new protocol has been implemented. And for me, it makes a far better way to illustrate the theme of Philippians. It is true, as the queen's flag is evidence that she's residing in her palace, joy is the proof that Jesus lives in a person's life. Where Jesus rules, joy will reign. But there are times in a believer's life when we do suffer and grieve and mourn and experience loss. But that doesn't mean that Jesus has abandoned us. No, King Jesus still resides on the throne of our heart. His presence always brings joy, just at times it's a joy tempered with sorrow. In short, the joy of Jesus can even fly at half-mast. The book of Philippians is about joy. But the joy we find in Jesus isn't just good times and happy feelings. Paul writes this letter from prison. He's on death row. Yes, in his heart, there's a great joy, even though circumstances in his life are painful and excruciating. Here's the theme of Philippians, joy at half-mast. Because Jesus rules in good times and in troublesome times, 
Joy still reigns despite our outward circumstances, even in difficulties and heartbreaks and tragedies, even when the flag is lowered to half-mast. You know, it's amazing that a letter whose theme is joy begins with two men in jail. We read in chapter 1, verse 1, Paul and Timothy, bondservants, are literally slaves of Christ Jesus. This is what led to Paul and Timothy's arrest. The reckless abandon of their faith to go anywhere to do anything to spread the gospel got them incarcerated. These were truly gospel-oriented men. It was the year 62 AD. Paul is awaiting his day in court before the wicked emperor Nero. Whether he lives or dies now, whether it's thumbs up or thumbs down by the emperor, Paul's plight is about to be decided by the whim of an egomaniac. And quite frankly, it could go either way. Yet throughout this letter, this man remains jubilant. You see, Philippians is one of four letters that Paul wrote, along with Ephesians, Colossians, and Philemon, that we call the prison epistles. They were written during Paul's incarceration in Rome. He's behind rusted bars, yet bursting with joy. Philippians is joy from a jail cell. But we're going to discover that Philippians is also joy from a doctor's office where you've just been diagnosed with a cancer. Or joy in the unemployment line after being fired from a job. Or joy at a friend's funeral alongside a grieving family. Or even joy in the principal's office when your child has gotten in trouble. Or joy in the mailbox after receiving a foreclosure letter. You see, joy at half-mast is the theme of the book of Philippians. Even in suffering, joy is still the proof that Jesus is in the house. And finding that joy in the midst of such dire situations is the secret revealed in these four chapters. Well, Paul addresses his his readers. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. We're going to discover that the affection he shows these Philippians is proof that this church was Paul's favorite. The saints in Philippi were the first believers in Europe. They were pioneers for the gospel. In 52 AD, Paul set out on his second missionary journey. He was fresh from the Jerusalem council where the apostles had decided that the Gentiles didn't need to observe the Sabbath or be circumcised or keep kosher to become pleasing to God. In essence, they didn't have to become Jews to be Christians. A right standing with God is achieved apart from the law, in Christ alone, by faith alone, thanks to grace alone. What a shot in the arm this was to Paul's evangelistic efforts. He now can minister to the Gentiles with the full authority and support of the Jerusalem church. Well, Paul traveled westward, first to Galatia to visit the churches that he and Barnabas had started on his first trip. He then wanted to go south to Ephesus, then north to Bithynia. In both cases, he was forbidden by the Holy Spirit. God had even greater ambitions for the gospel than Paul. The vast pagan hordes that were all over Europe, even the capital of the empire itself, the great metropolis of Rome, were desperate for the gospel. The Holy Spirit's prohibitions funneled Paul westward toward the coast, toward the Dardanelles and the town of Troas. 
And it was there in Troas, along the Turkish Straits, that Paul had a vision. He saw a man from across the sea, from Macedonia, calling for him to cross over the Aegean Sea and to help them. Paul immediately concludes that this vision is God's way of saying, go west, young man, and take the gospel with you. And the first place that they settled in Europe is this Greek town of Philippi. It was a smaller city, probably around 10,000 people. It was in the region of Macedonia. Acts 16 recounts the start of this church. And what a cast of characters were there in the beginning. Apparently, there were few Jews in town, not even the 10 men required to start a synagogue. But there were a few Jews and some God-fearers who met by the river outside of town for Sabbath worship and prayer. Well, as soon as Paul learned about their assembly, he paid them a visit. And it was a leading businesswoman. Her name was Lydia. She became Christianity's first convert on European soil. She and her household came to faith in Jesus. After Lydia's conversion came the demon-possessed girl, who at first was pestering Paul with unwanted advertisement. She was following Paul and Silas around, shouting, These men are the servants of the Most High God. This is not the kind of person you want as your advanced man. You don't really want a demon-possessed gal out advertising for your ministry. She was a disruption. Finally, Paul casts the demon out of the woman. He eases her pain. And I suppose she too became a member of this church. Of course, the little girl's handlers didn't like what Paul had done. Without the demon, she could no longer tell fortunes and make them a profit. So they dragged Paul and his sidekick Silas before the city magistrates. They had the two men beaten and thrown into prison. Yet this letter will testify that nothing, nothing dampened Paul's joy, even a Roman beating. For at midnight, remember, Paul and Silas were in the prison singing praises to God. They must have been rock songs, for the earthquake rocked that prison, swung open the doors, and loosened the prisoner's shackles. In the aftermath, the jailer and his family gave their lives to Jesus, again adding members to the church. Thus, the saints in Philippi, Paul writes of, included a successful businesswoman, a slave girl who was a former Satanist, a bruising jailer and his family. Later we'll learn of two contentious women and a faithful pastor. This was the surprising beginnings of the church at Philippi. These Philippians were a diverse group, mostly from unsavory backgrounds, but they had one commonality. Their lives had been radically changed by the gospel. What a contrast to modern church growth methods that implore pastors to narrow their focus to a targeted demographic, usually white, middle class, 30-somethings. This was not how Paul grew the church. He trusted in the power of the gospel to reach anybody and everybody. He believed it had the power to bring folks together and then even keep them together. This is why he was so proud of what God had done in Philippi. I mean, a successful business one a delivered demoniac, a tough-as-tax jailer. Can you imagine a more diverse group of people? And yet the glue that bound them together was the realization that they were now saints in Christ Jesus. 
And this wasn't just theoretical. Their unity in Jesus was more than just a sweet, feel-good sentimentalism. They were living out their unity in an organized community. That's why Paul words it to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons. In other words, the Philippians were living life under common leadership. They were functioning together practically. This word bishop, it means overseer. Deacon means servant. These were the two categories of leadership in the early church that helped the pastors. The bishops or elders concerned themselves with the spiritual needs of the fellowship, whereas the deacons were the designated doers. They served the material needs. And these officers were proof that Philippians valued their togetherness. They realized that all of life needs some kind of structure, thus they had organized to promote their unity. You know, I hear people say all the time, hey, I believe in Jesus, I just don't want to have anything to do with the organized church. Well, I got to tell you, the only church you read about in the New Testament is an organized church. God saves us spiritually, but then he guides us practically through elders and deacons. The Philippians had shared in this life-changing good news of Jesus Christ. They wanted to live it out. They wanted to spread it around, and so they embraced leadership to help them. And to this church, Paul writes, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace. The beautiful twins of the New Testament. My daughter has twins. she got a little boy and a little girl. And before Kate and Luke were born, Natalie revealed their gender to the family. You know this younger generation, they make a big deal of this now, you know. Revealing party. All these creative ways of revealing the gender of the baby. Well, Natalie, she served us a slice of cake. And when she cut the cake into slices, half were pink and half were blue. <clears throat> there were two colors per slice. And this is true of the good news of Jesus, the gospel. It's a slice of God's blessing in two colors, grace and peace. Grace God's unmerited love drew Jesus to the cross. Now peace reigns in its wake. But to know God's peace, you first have to be a recipient of his grace. It's one slice, but in two colors. And then Paul writes in verse 3, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. When Paul thought of these Philippians, Lydia, the girl, the jailer, the others, his mind was flooded with fond feelings. He was endeared to them, but not because they had grabbed a cup of coffee one morning or they had had dinner at each other's house or even chatted each other up after church one week. Their fellowship was more than just casual socializing. Paul calls it, your fellowship in the gospel. These people were held in the grip of the gospel. Their lives had been altered by the same change agent. They all sensed the same commitment. These Philippians were in this new life together. They had made the same sacrifices. They were sharing some of the same experiences. They were all satellites orbiting around the same gospel, held in the same gravity. 
It's sad when a Christian hops from church to church to church looking for a fellowship that feels right or where they can fit in. That's not real fellowship. That's just socialization. Now, I suppose it's okay to find some people you like, a few girlfriends, maybe some card partners, maybe a fishing buddy or two. But hey, don't mistake that for the fellowship of the gospel. It's not going to bring you the fulfillment you desire. Once in a GQ interview, NBA superstar Kobe Bryant, he was asked about his friendships. He said this, I have like minds. I've been fortunate to play in Los Angeles where there are a lot of people like me, actors, musicians, businessmen, obsessives, people who feel like God put them on earth to do whatever it is they do. Do we have time to build friendships? No. Do we have time to socialize and to hang out aimlessly? No. Do we want to do that? No. We want to work. Now, later in the article, Kobe mourns the lack of committed friends in his life. But in a sense, I understand what he's saying. What was vital to him was vital to the Apostle Paul. Paul wasn't into just hanging out and socializing with a lot of people as much as he was finding folks who were committed to doing what God put them on earth to do and then working with them to fulfill that goal. You see, the fellowship of the gospel isn't as much about us being buddies as it is finding like minds. This is what binds people together in deeply committed ways. Two soldiers in a foxhole fighting the same enemy. Stakeholders in a business pulling for the same prize. Teammates facing the same challenge. Not just folks sitting around drinking coffee and chewing the fat. This is why every recollection of the Philippians stirred in Paul a deep and fond affection. His thoughts of them spawned a prayer and a smile. From the first time they met to that very moment, their fellowship had been more than pats on the back. They had co-labored in and for the gospel. These were gospel-oriented people. They lived and fought and sacrificed for the gospel. If you've been church hopping, trying to find the right church, hoping to find some good vibration somewhere, I suggest you find a church that's gospel-oriented and regardless of the feel-good effect, make it your home. Eventually, you'll create deep bonds in the gospel. And here's what brought Paul great joy when he thought of the Philippians. His confidence was in God, not the Philippians. Notice he writes, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Can we say amen? Yeah. You know, one of the reasons Paul could rejoice, could literally take joy in any circumstance, is that he was totally confident that God, what God had started, God would finish. I, for one, am notorious for starting projects that I never finish. I have jobs that just sort of keep rolling over to the next honeydew list. I can take you on a tour of my garage and show you dozens of half-finished projects. But I'm not the only one. I took a lot of joy in finding this out. <laughs> Did you know that Michelangelo, this guy was a genius, a sculptor, a painter. His statues of Moses and David are among the world's masterpieces. 
Yet today, there is an entire museum in Florence, Italy that is dedicated to Michelangelo's unfinished works. Not so, though, with Jesus. Whatever he starts, he finishes. I know you're discouraged. I know you've failed him countless times, but take heart. Jesus didn't begin a work in you to leave you high and dry. He doesn't abandon us in midstream. He intends to hang in, hang in there with you so you hang on to him. Jesus has no unfinished projects. And then notice verse 7. For just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. I love this beautiful statement Paul makes of these Philippians. He says, I have you in my heart. Isn't that beautiful? Paul's life was full of joy, and here's a reason why. His priority was people. Not stuff, but people. Paul wasn't concerned with the clothes on his back or the roof over his head. There is no joy in stuff. His life revolved around the people in his heart, the like minds in which he had fellowship in the gospel. There was a businessman at his retirement party. He made this statement. As I look back on my career, my fondest memories are not of the money I made or the goals I accomplished, but of the relationships I formed. As Paul said to the Philippians, because I have you in my heart. See, life gets drained of its joy, not when we go through tough times, but when we go through them alone. The road is hard, but it doesn't have to be lonely. Keep your heart open to your friends in the gospel, fellow partakers of grace. I think this is a truth that's hard for people today to grasp. In our materialistic world, we've grown up assuming that joy can be found in that house that we want, in that promotion that we need, in that car that we've just bought, in our possessions. People in our lives are often viewed as throwaways. Hey, hold on to your stuff. That's what really matters. You can find new friends anytime. Hey, when was the last time you made a decision based on sheer loyalty to a friend? This is so out of the realm for most folks. Paul assures them of his love with an oath so they'll believe it. He says, for God is my witness how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus. And Paul prays for his partners in grace. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and in all discernment. You know, as your pastor, I harbor a secret fear. I fear that the more you get to know me, the less you'll like me. Folks see me up front at church. They hear me sing. <laughs> they think, that's Sandy. He's such a cool guy. He's so talented. They come up afterwards, they make nice comments, and I just smile. But in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, man, what's going to happen when you realize I'm not the perfect pastor? That I make mistakes, that I pick my nose, that I fight with my wife. What's going to happen? <laughs> hey, letting you get to know me is risky business. And the same is true for each of us. That's why we should pray that our love would abound still more and more 
in all discernment. In other words, that we'll give each other the benefit of the doubt as we get to know each other. That we'll show each other the same kind of grace that we've been shown. That God will extend his mercy to you through me and to me through you. And in light of verse 9, I think it's helpful to remember that Jesus is the only person of which we can say, the more you get to know him, the more you'll like him. Jesus has no downside. He is thoroughly cool all of the time. And remember that when you pray for someone. You know, it makes your praying for that person a lot easier. Realize all that keeps your friends from falling head over heels in love with Jesus is to know him better. Our love for Jesus abounds as we grow in our knowledge of him. God, reveal your son to him. Lord, show Jesus to her. This is how we should pray for our lost friends. This is what's going to bring them out of their darkness into the light. And then Paul also prays that you may approve the things that are excellent. You know, it's easy to choose good from bad. It's more difficult to pick out the best from the good. You know, when you first become a Christian, God calls on you to clear out all the obvious evil, to replace it with some things that are pure. You're choosing between good and bad, right and wrong, clean and dirty, and the choices are pretty clear cut. But God wants more for you and me, not just good things. He desires the best that life can bring us, and it's the good things that often get in the way of the best. Too many good things sometimes can crowd out and leave little room for what would be the best use of our time and energy. It said the good is often the enemy of the best. This is why we should pray for the ability to approve the things that are excellent, to pick out the best from the rest. And then he prays that you may be sincere and without offense to the day of Christ. Here's another way that Paul prays for the Philippians, that God will give them a lingering, lasting sincerity. Hey, I hope you pray this for me, and I'll pray it for you. In every Christian's life, there's a gap between what we are and what we should be. At first, our goal is to shrink that gap. We want a sincere, genuine faith. But over time, we tend to ignore the gap. We become content with what the gap is, or we even deny that a gap exists. Paul prays that God will keep the Philippians on the cutting edge of their commitment, that they won't grow dull to either where they're at or where they should be. He prays that they will maintain a sincere and genuine faith. He continues praying for the Philippians in verse 11, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Had a big disappointment in my life recently. I found out that the Supreme Court has ruled that a Minute Maid fruit drink called pomegranate blueberry, which happens to be my favorite, was deceptively labeled. In the fine print at the bottom, it warns you, flavored blend of five, five juices. And then in still smaller print that, quite frankly, I never read, it says, with added ingredients and other natural flavors. Oh, my. 
who would have thunk that my pomegranate blueberry delicious drink was only one half of 1% pomegranate or blueberry juice. It's actually loaded with cheaper juice, like apple juice and grape juice. The juice didn't live up to the label. But Paul prays that you and I will, that as Christians we'll be what we say we are, that we'll be filled with the fruits of righteousness. You know, our lives should be stamped with God's fingerprints. Hey, what if the police checked your life for prints? Whose would they find on your life? Yours, the world's, a friend's, the devil's? Or would they find God's prints on your life? Would your life show evidence of God's touch? We say we know Jesus, but would the contents of our lives support what's on the label? As Paul prayed for the Philippians, let's pray for each other that it will. When we pray, we should pray like Paul that our love for Jesus abounds as our knowledge of him grows, that we'll discern the best from the good, that we'll stay sincere, and that our contents will match our label. And then verse 12 tells us, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. Here's another reason that Paul takes joy in his difficulties. He knows that God is in charge. God saw to it that Paul's imprisonment advanced the gospel. God turned a prison into a platform for Paul. At every opportunity, Paul preached Jesus to the palace guard, and Roman soldiers got saved by the droves. Now understand, the imperial or the Roman guard, the palace guard, consisted of 9,000 hand-picked soldiers. One of the duties of this special detail was to detain the emperor's personal prisoners. Now imagine, if you're a guard, and you're chained to Paul for a four-hour shift, (laughs) you think you'd hear a compelling witness for Jesus Christ? I'm certain Each time a legionnaire was assigned to the prison and to Paul, it was another opportunity for him to share the gospel. I'm sure the apostle didn't personally evangelize all 9,000 palace guards, but imagine the impact a couple of dozen of new converts would have had on the ranks. The word furtherance in verse 12 is a translation of the Greek word prokope, which referred to a group of woodcutters clearing the way through a dense forest for an advancing army. Paul saw his jail time as an opportunity to take the gospel to people who otherwise would have never heard. His chains were Christ's will. Paul's incarceration took the gospel, born on the outskirts of the empire, to the very heart of its capital. The emperor's most trusted men were being born again. Most of us would have gotten bummed out if we'd suffered Paul's plight and been thrown into prison. We'd moan and whine and bellyache, and we'd accuse God of being unfair for say, oh God, why, woe is me. Few of us would see our unlikable circumstances as an opportunity for the furtherance of the gospel. This is why we need to reevaluate our attitude. 
Are we gospel-oriented in our outlook on circumstances? We should be. I have a friend of mine who turns his dialysis regimen every week into a time to witness to other patients and to the nurses who treat him. I know another person who uses the time he seemingly wastes on brainless tasks at work as an opportunity to pray for missionaries all over the world. I once missed a flight, thought it was the end of the world, but the next day my neighbor came over and asked if I would share Jesus with her daughter. She set it all up. If I'd made my flight, I would have missed my opportunity. As Christians, we need to retrain our thinking to view our inconveniences as God's opportunities. Cliff Barrows was Billy Graham's right-hand man for 60 years, but it's interesting how they teamed up. Barrows and his newlywed bride were on their honeymoon. They'd scraped together just enough money to buy two train tickets and hotel reservations. But when they reached their destination, they found that the hotel they were supposed to be staying at had closed down. They ended up in a vacant room over a grocery store. The next day, the owner of the store heard Cliff playing Christian songs on his trombone. He told him about a rally being held that night. A young evangelist named Billy Graham was in town. Barrows went. That particular night, the man in charge of the music didn't show up, and Cliff was asked to help out. Well, the rest is now history. What seemed like disastrous circumstances at first ended up furthering the gospel. When you get delayed, when you get sidetracked, it could be God is actually rerouting you for the gospel's sake. You'll find great joy when you remember that the God in heaven is in charge of your circumstances. And then verse 14, And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Not only had Paul's prison time created opportunities for him to share the gospel with the palace guard, it had inspired other Christians to come out of the closet with their own testimony. They were thinking, if Paul can witness behind bars, we should be willing to share our faith as free men out in the open. This is my reaction to the gospel witness of courageous Christians today. When I hear of a Turkish or a North Korean Christian who hosts a secret Bible study in their home, or when I hear of a teenager on a college campus who dares to stand up for the truth, people willing to make heavy sacrifices for Jesus provide inspiration to the rest of us to step across the street and invite our neighbor to church or to share God's love with our waitress or to do a kind deed in Jesus' name. The faith of a few emboldens the faith of us all. And then Paul writes, Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. It seems that Paul's imprisonment had spawned a sudden acceleration of Christian witness. And it was obviously coming from a mixture of motivations. Some of the preachers were truly inspired by Paul, but other preachers plotted that while the Apostle Paul was out of commission, they could make a bigger name for themselves. They saw Paul's imprisonment as an opportunity to increase their own popularity. Paul says, The former preached Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. 
There were sincere pastors in the early church who saw Paul's trial and his imprisonment and wanted to step up in their efforts to fill the void. They were inspired by love for Paul and the gospel. But there were other pastors whose intent was to pour salt on Paul's wounds. They were jealous of his fruitfulness and they wanted to agitate him. They would have been happy if Paul had gotten discouraged and just dropped out. Can you imagine a pastor holding a grudge who uses the gospel of all things to compete with another man's ministry? Oh, it's amazing to me how territorial pastors can get. They resent it when another pastor moves into their area as if the gospel had some kind of no-compete clause attached to it, as if there weren't enough sinners around, out there to go around for all of us. Whoa, Nellie, this sounds ugly. Oh, but it happens far more than you think. Jealousy in the ministry is one of the biggest problems in the church today. Pastors are tempted to compare themselves with one another, the size of their congregations, the buildings, the finances, the outreaches. But comparison is a killer. Did you know you start comparing yourself with others, whether it's a pastor comparing churches or a husband comparing wives or a wife comparing husbands? You start comparing, comparison's a killer. It drowns out your joy. Comparison is a kill joy. It's been said, jealousy is the art of counting somebody else's blessings instead of your own. Paul knew there were Christian workers who were jealous of his ministry. They were hoping to promote themselves and one-up Paul while he was behind bars. Yet notice Paul's amazing response to these jealousy-driven ministers. This blows my mind. Verse 18. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Now don't misunderstand. Paul isn't suggesting that motive doesn't matter in ministry. In 1 Corinthians 3, we're taught that it's not the quantity or the quality that counts when we minister for the Lord. It's the heart behind our service. That's what matters. In all that we do for God, it's our motive that determines our reward. G. Campbell Morgan put it, motive is everything in the kingdom. Surely in God's eyes, the right motive is a must. But it may not be that important to the person receiving the ministry. For where the gospel is preached, people come to Christ, even if the preacher's motives are suspect. See, the power is in the message, not the messenger. Isaiah 55 verse 11 reads, So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void, but it shall accomplish what I please, and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. The Bible is a supernatural book. And one of the proofs of its power is its ability to shine despite some of the shady people who preach it. Not every pastor has the best intentions. Just because God chooses to use a man to share his word doesn't mean that he's placing his stamp of approval on everything else going on in that man's life. A mouth can speak while the heart still reeks. Hey, that God would let corrupt preachers preach his incorruptible word 
You know, that only means that God loves people enough to use whatever means is available to reach them. God just loves people that much. Regardless of a minister's motive, either because of him or in spite of him, Paul rejoices that the gospel is preached. He says, I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. He double rejoices over any proclamation of the gospel. We've learned this morning that Paul was all about the gospel. His fascination with the gospel, his dedication to the gospel, his proclamation of the gospel, it colored all that Paul did and thought. As one commentator puts it, he was gospel intoxicated. Think of it. His relationship with the Philippians was shaped by the gospel. His approach to circumstances was shaped by the gospel. Even his evaluation of other men's ministries was determined by the gospel. It was all based on the gospel. In fact, we'll see next week that even Paul's attitude toward life and death was oriented around the gospel. But what about us? Our attitude toward friendships, our approach to circumstances, even the aspirations of other people, does all of life take a back seat to the gospel? It should. Here's the first way to find joy at half-mast. Orientate your life around what matters most, and that's the gospel.